Welcome to the MBA Insider Podcast. I'm your host, Al D. This is a show designed for aspiring current and former MBAs looking for advice on how you can grow your career through an MBA degree. During each episode, I'll talk to MBA students, graduates, and leaders about the MBA experience, navigating the workplace, and career development so you can learn how to develop and achieve your own version of career success through an MBA and beyond. Welcome to the MBA Insider Podcast. My name is Al D. I'm the host of the MBA Insider Podcast and the founder of MBAschool.com. Today we have a special treat because I am dropping in a episode into the feed for my other podcast, The Edge of Work. This episode features the author, Simone Stolzoff, who is the author of the recently released book, The Good Enough Job. This was a really fun and thoughtful and thought-provoking conversation I had with Simone on my other podcast, The Edge of Work, about what is a good enough job and really getting to the heart of what are we doing with all of this ambition and is it best served in our work? Now, that may seem controversial for some of you, but if it is, or even if it sounds interesting, I encourage you to listen to this episode and think about it in the context of what is your relationship with work and career and why is that important to you? And are you living in a way right now that really aligns with the role that you want work to play in your life? I think this was a really thought-provoking interview for me. It really made me think about my own ideas around how I want to be ambitious, but on my own terms, and the role that work plays within my life. And if you like this episode, please make sure to check out my other podcast, The Edge of Work. So make sure to listen in to my interview with Simone. Okay, so I am here with Simone Stozoff, who is the author of The Good Enough Job, Reclaiming Life from Work. So Simone, thank you so much for being here. I always love starting the podcast off with a warm-up question. And so Simone, my warm-up question to you, which I think is timely given the name and nature of your book, but what was your first job and what did you learn from that experience? Thanks for having me, Al. It's a pleasure to be here. My first job was as a summer camp counselor at an overnight summer camp in Yosemite, California called Camp Tawanga. And I learned so much from that experience. I think as a teenager, having a job where I was really treated like an adult for a first time allowed me to embody that maturity that I looked up to for so many years as I thought about my older brother and my parents' work lives. And I saw for the first time what a job could be. It could be a source of community. It could be a source of purpose. It could be a way to subvert yourself in the face of greater identity and a greater sense of meaning beyond just my own fluctuation of my teenage life. And in some ways, it's still one of the best jobs I've ever had. I I remember the sort of teacher or the counselor training that we had at that summer camp and some of those lessons that I still apply to my work life today. Sounds like a lot of great lessons and a lot of great learnings about it from a job at a very young age. And if we fast forward a little bit, and if I, when I was doing my research, I was taking a look at your LinkedIn profile and you see things on there like graduating from the University of Pennsylvania and going to Stanford for a master's and working at IDEO and writing for The Atlantic and all of these other things. But let's peel beyond that a little bit. Maybe talk about and walk me through growing up, what were some scripts or things you learned from others about this idea about work? 
Yeah, so I'm lucky to have four parents. My biological parents got divorced at an early age and both remarried. And so I grew up with four parents with four very different jobs. Well, my mom and my dad are both psychologists. But my my stepdad is a jazz presenter and my stepmom is a lawyer. So I think from each of them, I inherited a different script or an idea, different idea of the purpose of of work in one's life. I think more than anything, though, what I was able to witness with were the ways in which my parents all prioritized life outside of work. I'm very grateful that none of my parents were workaholics or what I call in the book workists, people that sort of worship work as it were in a religion. And I think each of them had a clear sense of who they were when they weren't working. And I saw that reflected in them showing up to my sports games as I was playing in high school or thinking about the times where I got to witness them interact with their friends or have hobbies outside of what they did for work. And I'm grateful for those models of both what it means to be a professional, but also what it means to have a life outside of what we do for a living. It sounds like you did have some really good role models and some good influences in terms of how that manifested yourself in terms of the things that you were able to do, the schooling that you had, and also, like you said, having this healthy relationship with work. But talk to me a little bit about graduating from college and entering the workforce for the first time. What was that first job you had and what did you start to notice or just observe just about your relationship with work or your career at large? Yeah, even before that, I have this very distinct memory from being a senior in college and I had the opportunity to interview my favorite writer in the world. His name is Anis Mojgani. He's a poet. And I was a 22-year-old studying poetry and economics. And so already there is this kind of tension between art and commerce set up in my life. And I had the opportunity to interview him. I remember asking, Anis, how do you feel about the mantra, do what you love and never work a day in your life? And he said something that I'll never forget. He said that, Simone, some people do what they love for work and others do what they have to do for work so they can do what they love when they're not working. And neither is more noble. And his wisdom always stuck with me, being a sort of naive 20-something that I was. At first, I did not heed his advice. And so I spent my 20s playing Goldilocks with careers. I worked in advertising for a few years, and then I worked in tech for a few years. And then I worked in journalism for a few years and ultimately in design, all the while looking for that vocational soulmate, looking for that job that could help me self-actualize, that would be a perfect expression of who I uniquely was. I think Anissa's wisdom was really pointing out that some people really look to work to be their identity and others work look to work to be more of a means to an end. I think that last part is key, that the neither is more noble. Because we live in a world that loves to revere those whose identities and their jobs neatly align. And here was my professional idol, a professional poet, no less, telling me that it's okay to have a day job. And I think it took me a little while to internalize some of his wisdom, but I think the initial kernel that ultimately led to the book was this moment where I was choosing between these two paths, one to continue as a magazine writer and another to join this global design firm. And it really didn't feel like I was choosing between two jobs. It felt like I was choosing between two versions of myself. 
And I think at that point, I could have done a better job of listening to Anissa's wisdom and that a job is part of, but not the entirety of who we are. And ultimately, that sort of existential angst that I felt around that career crossroads was ultimately what drove me to begin this research project, which became the book. So I want to play with that there, mostly because it is, I remember reading that part in that story, and it's something that resonates with me. I want to say sometime when I was maybe a teenager, I had a very similar conversation with my mom. And one of the things that I grew up with and had the pleasure of was that I attended Catholic Jesuit middle school, high school, and college. And one of kind of their messages that they always talk about was this idea of being able to find the intersection point of doing something that is uniquely a talent of yours, that makes an impact on the world, and that is in the service of others. And that is similar, not entirely the same as do what you love, but you can see the next iteration of that being something along the lines of doing something that, that you love. And so I very much, particularly as a teenager, was of the mindset of, oh, you should do something that you love. And I remember having this conversation with my mom one day about and asking her, I said, do you love your job? Do you love it? And she said, no. And, it, and she articulated how it was a means to an end. And a means to an end for her was being able to support our family, being able to take my sister and I and my father on vacations, being able to be there for her siblings. And I remember it was almost as if that was a narrative violation for me. Because I had been, in, I wouldn't say indoctrinated, but I had been encouraged and articulated in my own mind that, no, you have to do something that you love. And I don't know what it, I, I think it probably took me a good maybe 10 years from that point to really actually come to with being able to suss out the nuance in that. But I think something that you said really resonated with me, and I want to explore it a little bit further, but it's just this idea of when we get a narrative like that of do what you love, and I think it's something, I don't know how old you are, but we look around the same age where that was something that was pretty common. What kind of work do you have to do to kind of suss through that to figure out, is that going to make sense for me? Or is that something I can follow? Or is that even realistic? Yeah, it's a great question. And don't get me wrong. I don't think it's a problem to enjoy or even love what you do for work. I just think it's important to underscore that the ability to follow your passion or to do what you love is more and less available for different folks. And as Anise said, it's no less noble to treat jobs as more of a means to an end. I think our generation in particular, I think we're both probably smack in the middle of the millennial generation, inherited a lot of scripts around the benefit of doing what we love. I think this came from our parents, many of whom came of age and their professional lives in an era of unprecedented economic growth. It is reinforced by sort of celebrity CEO and idolization of work that we saw in our sort of teenage and early 20 years where tech was coming of age and we saw these seemingly overnight millionaires and these messages were literally plastered to the walls of our co-working spaces of always do what you love. And I think reinforced by social media where people paraded around their professional identities for the world to see. The last three years have really been a wake-up call for a lot of people. Many folks have lost their jobs, often by no fault of their own due to the pandemic or furloughs or the economy. And 
it has lifted the, the veil of perfection for many folks of what a job can deliver. And so on the question of whether the advice of pursuing your passion or doing what you love is necessarily damaging or helpful, I think it depends on the person. And I think those three sort of circles that you were taught in your Jesuit education around finding something that you enjoy doing, finding something that you can serve others and finding something, what was the third one? Maybe something that you could get paid for. Uh, that you're, you have a talent in or that, yeah, that you, you're a skill essentially. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think those three lenses are still valuable lenses to look at how we spend our time and how we choose to what professional opportunities we choose to pursue. And yet I don't think all three of them have to be fulfilled in a job. And I think that's where it can be damaging of looking for a job to be your sole sense of identity, of purpose, of service or community, because that's a burden our jobs are simply not designed to bear. And throughout the book, I talked to many folks that pursued that work-centric path only to have a moment of disillusionment. And other folks who had a job that was more of a means to an end, but still were able to find a sense of purpose or community in their lives outside of work. So your book starts off with a quote from Brene Brown, and it reads, I think, sufficiency isn't an amount at all. It is an experience, a context we generate, a declaration, a knowing there is enough and that we are enough. Could you say more about that? And why did you pick that quote to lead off your book? Mm. Yeah, for a few reasons. First and foremost, the book is called The Good Enough Job. There's sort of two origins of that title. One is good enough compared to the dream job. And the second is an allusion to this British psychoanalyst and physician named Donald Winnicott, who came up with this theory in the mid-20th century where he was observing this idolization of parenting. These parents, specifically these mothers, looking to be the perfect mother and trying to shield their kid from experiencing any harm. And then when their kid inevitably felt angry or frustrated or sad, the parents took it very personally. And Winnicott saw that, in fact, rather than using perfection as the ideal, we would all be better off if we instead took an approach of sufficiency, of good enoughness. That way, the kid can learn to self-soothe and the parent didn't necessarily get lost in their children's emotions. And I think a similar idolization is happening in the working world, as I just touched on. And the idea of a good enough job is determining what sufficiency means to you. It's intentionally subjective. Maybe it's a job that pays a certain wage or a job that's in a certain industry or gets off at a certain hour that lets you pick up your kids from school. But whatever it is, recognize because that idea of knowing what your definition of enough is will allow you to convert some of that listlessness about whether this is the perfect job for me or whether there's something better for me out there into a little bit of appreciation for the role that work plays in your life and into your life outside of work. And so I think the Brene Brown quote really points to that idea of sufficiency as a choice. It's our ability to understand what good enough means, or in her case, what enough means, 
And then we can choose where to draw those lines in the sand as opposed to being on that endless treadmill, that rat race that never seems to end. One of the reasons why I appreciated you put, a, put this quote in the beginning was that, for me at least, being able to have some kind of answer to that question was a big unlock for me in terms of my own relationship with work and careers. I'd be curious to know, let's play the opposite of this, qu this question. What happens when we don't at answer this question for ourselves? What happens when we don't define what is good enough? Yeah, I think the alternative is, as was the case with many of the folks that I interviewed in the book, they find themselves maybe halfway through their career, part of the way they're through their career, and realize that they're climbing a ladder that they don't actually want to be on, or they're playing a game that they don't actually want to win. And I think the, the problem with not being more proactive in determining what you want your relationship to your work to be is that your employer will happily define that relationship for you. Work, especially knowledge work, can expand like a gas to fill all of our unoccupied space. And if we are just going through life living based on what the market values, then you can get to a point where you wake up one morning and realize that you're not actually living by your own. You're not doing work that is in line with who you want to be in the world. So I think one way to make this real is to talk about a few of those people in the book that you came across. And I think one person I would love for you to start with is because it's a near and dear friend of mine, and that is Kay He. So would you mind sharing a little bit about what you learned from Kay in terms of following him and talking with him, and maybe perhaps in the context of this question of good enough? Yeah, I think there's a, a natural segue from what we were just talking about into Kay's story. Kay, in many ways, represents the pinnacle of what it means to be an overachiever. He was the valedictorian of his high school. He went to Yale. He chose a career at Yale based on what would pay the most money and a relatively common immigrant story. He's Cambodian-American, first generation, and was really looking for the most lucrative career to find a sense of security and stability that he didn't always have when he was growing up. And so in the late 90s at an Ivy League school, his choices in his mind were really just between being an engineer, being a doctor, being a lawyer, or going into finance. And he chose finance, the well-worn path from the Ivy League onto Wall Street. And for many years, continued to play that same sort of achievement game. He rose up the ranks at BlackRock, which is one of the largest asset management firms in the world. And he became one of the youngest ever VPs there. Before he turned 30, he had bought his first New York apartment. He had a seven-figure paycheck. And yet he woke up one morning and had that exact realization that I was talking about, that he was trying to win a game he didn't actually want to be playing. It really came to a head literally for him where his hair started falling off. And he kind of looked in the mirror and said, what am I doing? In many ways, this is the most cliche story in the book. It's the Wall Street executive who rises to the top and realizes from that perch that the view isn't all that it was cracked up to be. But then Kay made a drastic life change in more ways than one. He moved his family to California from New York. 
He began surfing every day. He started sending out this email to a few friends with recommendations from all the books and podcasts he was listening to. And that became the basis for his next chapter. Now Kay runs this newsletter and education organization called Rad Reads. And spending time with Kay in LA, it really showed me the balance, the calculus that we need to make between the two extremes. And one is the idea of just following what the market values, which I think the first kind of 30 years of Kay's life could neatly fall into that category. He picked the best school he could get into. He picked the highest paying job, et cetera, et cetera. Versus on the other end of the spectrum is just valuing what you value individually. I think that might be the path of someone who, for example, goes to pursue their art full-time. And I think there is danger at both extremes. Obviously, one of the dangers on the just following what the market values direction is a lack of fulfillment, a lack of meaning in the work that you're doing. But on the other end of the spectrum, there are the cases of people who say take on an inordinate amount of student debt in order to pursue a graduate degree that might not actually lead to job prospects on the other end, or the artist who is so preoccupied by how they're going to pay rent that it doesn't allow them to actually focus on their art. And so I think the wisdom from Kay's story and this chapter in general is our job as individuals trying to forge our path in the working world is to hold both of those in each hand. On one hand, the idea of what we personally value, and on the other end, what the market values, and finding something that sits in between, something that isn't too far on one end or too far on the other end, but actually thinking about how your desires and needs and passions intersect with what the market values. Something that always struck me about Kay's story, and it came out a little bit in the book, but it also comes out, at least for me, just for my own interactions with him, is that he seems to be very content with the thing that he is doing in the moment. And that doesn't mean that he's not thinking about the future, but I think there's a sense of calmness and presence that he has about the thing that he is doing. And I think what, for me, it strums up is, I think through his journey, he has figured out the things that really, for him, he's determined what is good enough and what I'm going to focus on and being able to then maybe either block out or ignore, at least temporarily, all of the other things. But I'm sure he would be the first to tell you that he's probably not perfect in every moment. And it can be really hard. Being, I think that really is something that illustrates perhaps maybe the push and pull of the external market forces versus internally what we might think and know. Yeah, 100%. And I think Kay represents someone who's been very intentional about defining those metrics that matter for himself. So one of the things that he cares about most is his ability to surf every day and his ability to walk his daughters to school in the morning and his ability to have dinner with with his family every night. And in many ways, his old lifestyle on Wall Street was not congruent with his ability to be able to uphold those values in his own life. I think it's a clear case of being able to determine what matters to you yourself and being able to live by his own rubric of success as opposed to someone else's. Hey there, it's Al. And thanks so much for listening to the MBA Insider Podcast. 
I wanted to take a quick break to ask you a small favor. I'm loving doing this show, and I hope you're enjoying it too. If you're enjoying this episode, I would really appreciate it if you take a few minutes to leave a review and rate this podcast on Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts, or simply share it on social media or send it to a friend. I'm incredibly grateful for your support. Thank you, and let's get back to the show. So as you mentioned, not everyone you've encountered who has figured out good enough is like Kay in the terms of a Wall Street executive who then finds a different path in terms of being a solopreneur. Could you share another example of someone you met, either from the book or from your research, perhaps that wasn't just did this in one foul swoop and just left one day to go be a solopreneur and just maybe has a little bit of a unique story or maybe perhaps isn't just this big lightning bolt bolt moment, but perhaps maybe something a little bit more ordinary. Yeah, I'll share the story of a fellow journalist that I profile in one of the chapters of the book, because it's both relatable to my experience, and it's a little bit more of that gray area between the sort of black and white of knowing exactly what you want your career path to be. So Megan Greenwell is her name. She in many ways, has achieved the highest level of journalistic success. She was on a team that won a Pulitzer Prize. She was editor-in-chief of her high school or her college newspaper, then went to the Washington Post, has written features for places like ESPN the Magazine and New York Magazine, etc. She was the editor-in-chief of Deadspin, the popular sports blog, the first ever female editor-in-chief of Deadspin, and then went on to be the top editor at Wired.com. But it was from that place at the top of the masthead at Wired where Megan started to have sort of a crisis of faith. For her entire life, journalism had been her everything. And she realized at midway through her 30s at a quote-unquote dream job that she was completely burned out her passion was no longer serving her and she could no longer do her best work. And so she decided to take a sabbatical. And on the sabbatical, on one hand, you might think that the story is top media executive Eat, Pray, Loves her way back into health and her memoir is forthcoming. But in fact, the sabbatical is really hard for her. She's still slept and ate and breathed journalism and no longer had sort of a story that she could be working on in the back of her mind or a team to be managing. She ostensibly took the time off so that she could rest, but felt guilty in moments that she was resting and felt like she should, for example, be working on a book proposal. And yet when she did go on to work on the book proposal, she'd feel guilty that she wasn't resting. That's <laughs> catch. 22 that I'm sure is relatable to our listeners. And I think Megan's story, especially in contrast to Kay's, shows that this conversation about what role we want work to have in our life is not simple. And neither in our kind of definition of what role we want work to have is not fixed. It'll change with seasons and different phases of our own lives. I think that's part of what makes this topic so interesting and so rich for me is that it is through the wrestling with this question of what role do we want work to play that we begin to determine what we value and what we care about. And very few people, even people who seemingly have it all figured out, actually 
do. You know, I think it's something that we will continue to wrestle with over the course of our entire lives. And it's these are fascinating questions to be asking ourselves. But even the sort of mythical land of work-life balance that is so often promoted is not a static state. It's not this equilibrium that you achieve and then never go back from. This conversation of the push and pull between our work lives and our lives outside of work will will continue forever. I, it was two things that come up for me there. I think the first thing that, that I think about is what you said in terms of the, I think the joy is in the journey and in, in learning in the journey of that pursuit. And it isn't a fixed point. It's not like one day, all of a sudden you wake up and you realize it and it sticks. It, it can and it evolves as life evolves. Uh, but the other thing that you said there that I want to dance with just for a little bit is something like this concept of work-life balance. And I guess maybe to set the context for this, for everyone out there who's listening, I'm not advocating for not resting or not taking care of yourself. But I also think it is something, again, when we hear about the corporate ladder or growing in your career or these kind of phrases that sometimes, or doing what you love, or these phrases or mental models that we often hear that I think were probably well-intentioned, but perhaps sometimes don't necessarily fit everyone's specific circumstances, right? Or and I guess where I'm going with this is that I think there's opportunity to not take these things as face value, and but instead to be like Megan and to be like Kay and to dance and to wrestle with the journey to figuring out what those things actually mean for you in this moment. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I think in some ways, the onus falls on the individual to be able to think about these definitions for themselves or to protect their time off or to set boundaries. And in other ways, they necessitate structural interventions. And so I think one of my issues with the common sort of anti-burnout advice of just set a boundary or perform self-care is it's not available to everyone. And at the end of the quarter, or if your paycheck or your performance evaluation relies on the amount of hours that you put in, it's not always up to the individual to be able to say, okay, I'm going to take this Thursday afternoon off and go to the zoo. So I think it points to the need for structural intervention, both at the government level and at the company or company policy level to make sure that the onus isn't always on the individual to draw these lines for themselves. I'm really inspired by companies that model the type of work-life balance or work-life integration that they hope to promote among their employees. I think one big mistake firms often make is they might have some policy or some nice internal communications about how much they value their employees' time outside of work. But unless the leaders of the organization are modeling those policies themselves, that's never going to trickle down. And so I'm inspired by organizations that have things like mandatory minimum time off or ways in which there are systems put into place to protect people's ability to be individuals outside of the workplace. I think there's also some limits to those policy-based solutions as well. So one example that I think of a lot is the country of Japan. So Japan has one of the most progressive paternity leave policies in the world. I think fathers are entitled to up to a year 
of paid time off once they have children. And yet in the last study that sort of looked into how many fathers were taking advantage of this benefit, a paltry 5% of fathers took all of the time that they were allotted. And so I think it points to two things. One is the one need for those structural protections to be put in place, like we just talked about. But the second is the cultural will to actually take advantage of them and do so. And that's a more complicated conversation that comes back to the culture of this country and what is celebrated and the availability of a social safety net that makes the consequences of losing our work more dire. And so it's not so black and white. You're right. And I think on that notion, so you and I are both in the United States. And what I would love to maybe talk about for a little bit is this, assuming that, or I shouldn't assume this, but my assumption is by putting this book out into the world, part of what you're hoping is that more people perhaps think about what a good enough job is and or really internalizing what that could be for them. And assuming that is true, what what hypothetically happens if all of us all of a sudden start getting good enough jobs? Like, what is that? Is that kind of perhaps a goal of yours? Or and if so, what does that actually look like for us at the individual level, and then perhaps even at a organizational or systemic level? Yeah, it's a great question. I think. The first thing that we'd see, which is some of what we saw during the pandemic, was a renewed interest in sources of meaning and community outside of the office. On the individual level, we saw the sort of boon of hobbies and people looking for new activities or ways to spend their time or to find that identity outside of work. And I think at scale, what this looks like outside of a global pandemic is a resurgence of the neighborhood and community and local groups that were flourishing in the mid-20th century in the U.S. I think, for me at least, playing on a recreational sports team is a great way to have a, an alternative source of identity and meaning beyond the job. But it doesn't necessarily have to be a club or a sports team. I think it can also just be an investment in the relationships in our lives. Even having a weekly breakfast date with your best friend or a tennis match with your brother can be a great antidote to a work-centric existence. And so I think if more people had a conception of a good enough job, I think people would be more lonely. I think our social fabric would be more tightly bound. I think our relationships would be stronger. And people would feel a greater sense of identity that isn't defined by our commercial ability to produce output. How would you describe your own journey with your relationship with work? I know we talked a little bit about the conversation you had with your favorite poet and how it may have helped you early on in your career with your own career decisions in terms of navigating but yeah, just curious to, for you to reflect a little meta, if you will, of after asking all these people and trying to evaluate how they saw their relationship with work, what has your journey been like? Yeah, it's a good question. I think ever in flux, even over the course of reporting this book, I am writing a book about work culture and the dangers of overwork, especially in my home country. And yet 
I was doing it alongside of, on the side of a full-time job for the first half of it. And a lot of my sense of self-worth was wrapped up in my ability to say, hit my writing goal for the week or turn the manuscript in on time. And so I want to be clear that I am by no means an expert in any of these topics. If there's any sort of credibility that I have, it's only that I've wrestled with these issues just as much, if not more, than I'm sure most of the listeners here. And as I mentioned, I really looked for a perfect dream job for the majority of my 20s, working in all of these different industries. And I think in my 30s, I've settled into a idea of what I want work to be in my life. And recently, this has been put to the test because I started working for myself for the first time. And I realized the ways in which I am at times my own worst manager and how hard it can be to honor the intentions I have of when I am and when I'm not working. And I think the one thing that has really changed my own aspiration is as opposed to like power being the North Star that I sought out, whether in the form of a high salary or managing lots of people or having a certain title at a company, my North Star has shifted towards autonomy and trying to be able to have as much agency over my own time as possible. And that is really the guiding light that has been what I've been striving for at this point in my career. I obviously have been in writing and I'm still a journalist and put out freelance articles and I do a little bit of teaching and I do a little bit of consulting. I have this sort of portfolio career, but all of it is in service of having a job in which I don't have to be in this mode of reactivity or have an inordinate amount of meetings in my schedule or Slack messages to respond to so I can be a little bit more proactive in the ways that I invest in my relationships as I start to think about building a family and prioritize other things beyond work in my life. Maybe last question here before we get to the speed round. One one thing that you just talked about, which we haven't talked about as much, is this idea of relationships. And while I do think that so one individual's relationship with work or how the role that they feel work, the role that they see work playing in their life is singular to them. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on either from people that you talked to and did for the research of the book or just what you've observed on the role that others play who are surrounding that individual in their own relationship with work. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a great question because I think our identities are definitely socially reinforced. And one of the risks of solely surrounding yourself by your work colleagues is it can create a sort of monoculture where you find yourself talking about work things outside of work because why not? And slowly work is seeping into every corner of your life. I think there it's really important to have models of different ways of arranging your working lives or models of people who have paths that are inspirational to you just to show that those are possible. Part of the reason why I think people like Kay are so inclined to follow these well-worn paths into investment banking or consulting is that those are the models that are surrounding you when the recruiters come to campus for on-campus recruiting and 
a lot of your friends are going to work for the Goldman's and McKinsey's of the world, there is this sort of mimetic desire to want to follow their lead and wonder, what am I doing if I want to pursue something that's a little bit more offbeat? Thankfully, I think the culture is changing around this. We're seeing a lot of people publicly sharing their journeys about taking what my friend Paul Millard calls a pathless path or just following their own North Star, their own sort of compass for what they know is right. And I think one of the biggest things that will help you continue on the path is to find the others, to find those other people that are also trying to forge their own way and can be a source of community and support and solidarity when you need it. Okay, so on every Edge of Work episode, Simone, I always ask the last couple questions for everyone. Uh, this is a little bit of a speed round, so I'd love a couple quick answers from you. So my first question in the speed round, what does a better world of work look like to you? I think a better world of work is a world where our employment and our survival are decoupled. I think one of the reasons why our relationship to work is so fraught here in the U.S. is that the consequences of losing work are so dire. And so I think the foundation for a healthier working world really starts by doing things like making our basic human needs of healthcare and shelter not contingent on W-2 full-time employment. I also think there needs to be a valuing of the different kinds of labor and work that exist in all of our lives. I talk to many sort of stay-at-home parents and folks that are caring for aging parents in their lives. And right now, our society doesn't do a great job of valuing those types of labor. And so I think a more healthy world of work starts with understanding the different forms work takes and being able to find a base level of societal support for the different types of labor that exists in all of our lives. Last question. What is one thing leaders can do to build a better workplace for their people? I think the best thing that leaders can do, and I think the best employee benefit in general, is trust. It's not a particular type of office perk or something at their campus or a sort of happy hour every week. It's the trust that employees can complete their jobs in a way that is effective and efficient and engendering that level of individual autonomy is, I think, what workers are going to start to expect in this world that has more distributed and hybrid working environments that have more different desires for what different people want from their jobs. I think the biggest thing that leaders can do is create systems by which workers can feel like they are the protagonists of their own careers, that they're driving their own work journeys and a level of trust that they do ultimately want what's best for the company. 
Simone Stolzoff, thank you so much for coming on the Edge of Work podcast. If people want to find your book, The Good Enough Job, Reclaiming Life from Work, or connect with you or learn more about what you're up to, where can they go and where can they find you? The best place to go is thegoodenoughjob.com. You can both order the book there as well as sign up for my newsletter. The book will hit shelves on May 23rd, 2023. So just right after you're probably listening to this podcast, the book is already available for pre-order and I'm a first-time author. So it would really mean a lot if you were interested by this topic to support me by buying the book. Hi, everyone. LD here. And thank you so much for listening to the MBA Insider Podcast. If you liked what you heard, make sure to head over to Apple Podcasts and to write a review. It will only take 15 seconds. I'd also love to hear what you've been listening to on the podcast and any suggestions you have for how we can improve. Find me on LinkedIn or head over to mbaschooled.com backslash podcast.